Hey everyone, welcome to episode 9 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Ravi Chandramala, the founder of a social enterprise called Copa, which is based in Kathmandu, Nepal. Now, I first came to know and meet Ravi when I was in Kathmandu earlier this year, just before the country went into a lockdown due to COVID-19. Ravi operates a social enterprise and in Ravi's own words, that is... Uh, social enterprise is a business in the sense that you have to sustain yourself as well, but not putting the money first. It's not only about the culpa that's growing every day. It's also the life of the people you're working with. They should also grow along with you. And also without giving a negative impact to the society and the environment. Culpa sells some of the most beautiful handicraft I have ever come across. Works of art made by indigenous communities all across Nepal, from the highest mountainous regions, accessible only by foot, down to the lush southern hilltops where straw mats and wild nettles originate. This is Ravi's story of why he chose to start a social enterprise, the processes and challenges he faced in the early days to be where they are today, the impact that Kolpa has made on the various Nepali communities, and his advice for others seeking to do the same. But before we begin, I'd love if you could head over to the Apple Podcast to leave a review. I love hearing back from my listeners and knowing how I can improve. And who knows, I might give you a shout out in the next episode. But until then, this is episode 9 of the So This Is My Why podcast with Ravi Mala. Are you ready? Let's go! Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. So for people who have never been to the country before, can you give us an idea of what your childhood was like? My father is an ex-police officer and I went to police school, which is established for the uh, children of an ex-police officer. When I was 10 years old, I went to that police school. For eight years, I just stayed in hostel and finished my grade 10. That schooling period was more of being disciplined and everything was about the routine, being yourself responsible because there's no parents. Even if you are eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old, you have to do everything on your own. Early childhood days. I always wanted to be a medical doctor. And so finishing my 10th grade, I went to a college. I started science there. And finishing that, I realized in Nepal, there was some other mental health issues. In 1996, I joined my Bachelor of Science. And at the same time, I was doing my psychology classes as well. Because I realized the mental health issue has been a big problem. And I wanted to pursue further in that. So I moved out to U.S. for the study in psychology in 1998. And so was there any desire to be an entrepreneur? Or did you know anyone that influenced you to want to do that? I was in U.S. for almost 12 to 13 years. Information technology was my major subject. But every time I read the news about Nepal, there was always about Nepal being on a developed country, not being able to... Uh, support themselves, not having enough human resources, and always relying on foreign funds. And I was kind of like, is it because of the education system that we have in Nepal, or is it just because we don't have enough people who could think of having 
enough knowledge to produce something within Nepal? You know, is it always about like getting something in the form of cash or donations or any kind of thing? So I was like, okay, you know what? I mean, if Nepal needs some development, it has to produce its own thing. Then I realized after coming back from US, no, we need to have a self-sustainable economy. Otherwise, we will be fully dependent on foreign countries or like foreign donations or INGOs and foreign organizations. That's not how the, the country should run. So I think the entrepreneurship is the one that will lead to that place. You wanted to go and do clinical psychology, but you ended up graduating with a bachelor's in IT. So what happened there? That was in 1998. There was Yahoo and the Netscape was there. Lycos, Alta Vista was a search engine. You know, those kind of things. Google was in a very primitive form. We haven't even heard about Amazon, you know, at that period. And even when you learn about the word, like how to do things in the word or in Excel, like even if you know how to write documents in a nice format, you'd get a job right away. That was the time. When I went there, a lot of Nepali students, some of my seniors were doing their masters. They were kind of surprised to hear me saying that I was there for a clinical psychology. Like, what makes you think that you could get a job in psychology? It's pretty hard. And you have to finish your masters. That's like another three more years. So you have to struggle for seven long years until you finish your masters. How are you going to support yourself financially? And then and I was like, actually, he was right. They have already had the experience. They have already done their masters and they're going through the masters. So they have the experience. And then I was like, okay, I don't know what to do. I have a science background. I'm, I was good at math and physics. And I was like, you know, because of the time and situation then. So an I street IT. So you graduated, you finished your bachelor's in 2005. And then you decided to come back. Did you have any clear plans on what you were going to do once you came back? E-commerce wasn't in Nepal. So I was thinking of starting my own IT company here in Nepal. That was my thoughts. We didn't used to even have a cable. It used to be a DSL. Verizon was providing the high-speed internet service through the telephone line. At that period, most of them has the landline connection. So we're thinking of providing an internet service through that. And that was my intention, actually, but uh, it didn't work out that well. And how do you pivot into the first iteration of Copa, which was Copa Traders? Right after 2005, I thought of, I have to do something for Nepal. I thought of promoting some Nepali products abroad. And I have a bit of a background in web designing and graphic designing and stuff. And, you know, I used to do things on my own, even when I was in New York. I have that passion with me. There were a lot of Nepali communities there. And whoever I met in New York, especially Americans, they always appreciate the way our culture is and their arts and crafts. And so I was like, maybe it has some market there. So then I registered Kolpa Traders as an exporting company for handicrafts. And that's how I started the Kolpa Traders. Is there a reason behind the name Kolpa? Yes, actually, because the place where I was born is Kolpakot. It's a historic place. And that place got a new name called Chaukel. But if somebody asks me where I'm from, I always used to say Kolpakot. Because Chaukel used to be a very difficult for me to say. But when I came back from the U.S. and then I realized I don't want that name to be forgotten. I just took the last quote out and then bring Kolpa as a brand. And also the thing that I work with kind of relates with the name because just like a name, I don't want that the, uh, to be forgotten. There are so many traditional skills here in Nepal, which is slowly disappearing. The artisans aren't encouraged and they don't see any market in it. They are doing this just as a hobby or if they need it, they will do it. To those artisans and the craftspersons, I have to go and encourage them, inspire them and not let that skills die. It's kind of like related with Kolpa. So I don't want those skills and traditions to be forgotten, that culture to be forgotten. There's a name and the work I do relate to each other. So that's the philosophy behind it. 
So I wanted to know, um, in those early days, was it difficult for you to run your business? And what led to you eventually leaving Nepal again to go back to the States? I was a freshly graduated IT student, and I've seen a lot of scope there in the U.S., and I wanted to do the same thing here in Nepal. There was a civil war happening, and there was a mistrust even among Nepalese here. We have never had a moment in history that the Nepalese fighting with Nepalese to get the rights. That time, everybody were in a very scary situation. Nobody trusted one another. The business environment wasn't good. There were lots of strike happening here, and there was like a, a vehicle strikes there. That's what we call the Nepal Bandha. Everything would be shut down by political parties. No one is allowed to run the business. So it was very fragile environment then. For me to start a business, and it was difficult just to get one liter of petrol, like I have to go to almost like 30 hours of riding. It was very difficult then. And then you eventually moved back in 2011 with your wife and two daughters. Was that a difficult transition for you guys? Yeah, it was actually, especially for me, because I stayed in the U.S. for so many years. Nepal was going through a lot of difficulties then. We used to have 16 hours of a blackout every day. The average was 12 hours. Imagine running a business with 12 hours blackout every day. It was a tough time, me and my wife. So we decided if I had to work 12 hours here in U.S., why can't we give the same time and effort in, in Nepal? At least in U.S., there will be someone to replace me. They have lots of people looking for a job, but in the context of Nepal, if that place is vacant, it's very hard to replace that place here in Nepal. So what we thought is, okay, let's go back to Nepal and see what we can do. If we're going to give that much of effort and time here in Nepal, at least something will come out of it. Something productive, something positive will come out of it. It was a difficult situation, but we did it and there's no regret. So you moved back. Did you know exactly what you were going to do? That time, actually, I didn't know. I know that I'm going to do something for the community, but I don't know how. I don't know which path I'm going to take. At that time, my youngest daughter was just one years old and someone has to take care of her. Both of us staying home, that shouldn't be our plan. So we thought of like someone needs to work, someone has to start doing a job. So my wife, she's very passionate about environment. She's like an activist. I asked her to just go for a job and I will just wait for a few more months or years to decide my profession or what I'm planning to do. So when she started working, I stayed home with my daughters. I started brainstorming things and I started meeting people. I started seeing Nepal from a very different way I haven't seen before. The work I'm doing right now is a result of the first few years of staying home with my kids and learning about Nepal. Before we go into that business side, I mean, like you were staying at home. Is that something that is normal in the Nepali society? Because from what I read, normally the men would go and work and the women would stay at home. So was that a difficult thing socially, culturally? When you have children, it's a responsibility of both parents to give more time to the children. And being a partner, you have to support them. My wife really wanted to work, especially on the environment field. She was really into it. I need to work. If I don't do it now, it's going to be too late. Then I said, okay, go ahead. That was the right decision that we make. And for me, at first, people kind of like, only you will see women taking care of kids. I mean, that's our traditional society. But nobody dared to question me that time because I always tell them I have two daughters and they still question me like, hey, you don't have a son. It's still a male-dominated society. And I said, no, look here, two daughters are my two sons. That's what I says, you know. I mean, there's nothing my daughters can't do. That's what I tell them now. Whatever your son can do, my daughter can do the same thing. Maybe better than that. People question me sometimes, but 
I don't take that seriously. When you have kids, it's it's responsible for both parents to to take care and give them your full time and, and support. Yeah, and I think people don't realize that looking after kids is a full time job, sometimes harder than having an actual job. So during that time, you're looking after your kids. You mentioned it briefly. You were spending your years researching, reaching out to people, creating that foundation for what Kolpa is today. And I was wondering, how did you even begin to do your research to understand and reach out and talk to these people while handling your kids at the same time? When my little one got 18 months, she started going to a nursery, just spending time with the other kids. And when both of my kids were in the school, I used to uh, roam around Kathmandu, like whenever there is an exhibition happening or any fairs that's going on, I used to go there and participate. I used to talk to them, ask them different questions, their life, their works and stuff. So that was the moment that I started doing a bit more research on it. I used to go to producers who are doing those things meeting them, seeing them working. So that was all in the morning, the time before the kids come back from school. And what was your main takeaway during all those research? What I realized is Nepal is very rich in natural resources. And we have such a wonderful skill for people here in Nepal, not only in Kathmandu Valley, not in the cities only. Most of them actually are living in a remote region of Nepal. That's what I found. Many people who are doing these things have been doing this for like decades and the thing is, the result that they were expecting wasn't up to the need, actually. The people, especially, don't appreciate their craft. They were taking everything for granted. And the people think the natural resources just comes for free. And those skills are just a part-time thing. They are just making these things just to kill their time. That's how they were taking these things. And I was like, that's not how it should go. Nepalese have exceptional skills here. And if those skills can be modified or give them a bit more value to it or it is the auditions to make things that can be marketable we can at least somehow uplift their financial situations that's what i realized and another thing is nepal is not the market that we need to sell those things here people here like bargains a lot even in a handmade products people bargain the same way as the imported products that's made by machines and for me that shouldn't be the case and what I thought is like, okay, if I proceed further or if I start my business, whenever I work with communities, products that I'm going to make, I'm not going to sell here in Nepal. I'm going to sell it abroad where it would be appreciated. So at what point do you decide that you were ready to take all that research and bring it into filtration? I talked to many artisans and many producers and I feel them like very hopeless. And then I was like, someone needs to step in and needs to act. I shouldn't wait anymore. So what I thought is, okay, I need to develop my website first. I need to reflect their work to the people abroad. And another thing is in 2014, kids have already grown up. I'm getting a bit more uh, relaxed from that side as well. My wife, she has already got used to the life here. Then I realized I need to lift this off. So you started with your website and what was the reaction? I did everything on my own, taking photographs, writing contents, and uh, fixing everything that the web needs. At first, I was also quite active in social media and the many people started recognizing and like, you know, hey, who is this? Like out of nowhere, there's a brand called by and it's selling Nepali products. And, and they have also a very, you know, fine looking websites. And there's been a bit of conversations happening around. I didn't realize it was already happening behind me. People have already started noticing us. And uh, 
most of the people, they don't even think those things are made here in Nepal. They were thinking like we import materials from abroad and uh, uh, do things here, but that is not the case. And for me, I'll take that as a compliment because we have never produced that fine products here in Nepal. So it was a very positive feedback that we received. You managed to get their interest overseas with amazing looking products as well. So what kind of products were you selling then? Who were the first community you worked with? We started with the cotton bags. I'm not a business person. I don't know much. Like, you know, taking risk in investment and stuff. And so just to be on a safe side, I started making cotton bags so that I could understand the business environment here in Nepal, the, the production, the process and everything like the, the exporting and all those things, you know, because I don't have any uh, friends or a family who are already doing this who could guide me through the process. So I started with the cotton uh, bags uh, with a very different designs. It was a very uh, uh, modern and contemporary designs that I had on. What I wanted was uh, all the per, all the things that I made needs to be made in Nepal here. It has to do the raw materials and the skills. Everything should be Nepali, but the product should satisfy the global customers. It has to be appealing to the mass. It shouldn't be to a certain community or it shouldn't have a limitation. That's how I was feeling. So even having a cotton bag made in Nepal and I made with a very uh, contemporary design and, and trendy looking print on it and wanted to satisfy the people from all walks of life. That was my goal. But, you know, internet isn't easy to sell yourself in this huge and huge marketplace here. But what I thought is like, I'm just a drop in the ocean. That's how I felt in the beginning. And my customers, my client, it was not restricted or not limited to a certain boundaries or group or a community. It was more for the world. And which was the first community you ended up working with? I first went to organizations supporting deaf people there. I asked them to make me a sample of it, but they have their own limitations and I couldn't get the result. So I moved to financially and challenged people, especially women. I went there to a few cooperatives and there were some other from outskirts of Kathmandu. I went there. They know how to stitch. They know how to do things. They have the sewing machine. And I tried to work with them, but it didn't work out as well, you know. And then I went to a one community in Kirtipur. It's a family-run business. And then I went and I approached them and the product was fantastic. It was beyond my expectations. And those, all those cotton tote bags that we have made in the first few years are made by that community. It's a newer community. And was it hard to communicate with them and gain their trust? Yes, actually, because being a startup, I can't invest much in it as well. I was a startup. Not many people know about it. And I can't guarantee like how many pieces I would be able to sell. So they were nice. They were very cooperative. It was a bit difficult, but they didn't mind. When they saw my websites and then they realized it's not only about today, it's not only about a month or so. Kolpa is not about certain goal-oriented business. It's more about a long-term one. And I remember when we talked the last time, you mentioned there was this Daru community in Tarai. Yes. Yes, and yes. they are the ones who produced the straw mats. Could you tell us the story of how you got to know them, create that bond and trust? Yeah, you know, during my research days, like when I was taking care of my kids, those from 2011 to 2014, <clears throat> that was the time actually uh, I met one of the ladies from Tarai. She was a Taru lady. Her name is Santi. And there was one fair happening here. The last day I went there, I saw her floor mat and asked her the price of it. She was so desperate to sell those mats because she's from a far south. If she couldn't sell those mats, she has to take it back home. 
and not being able to sell. It's, it's, it's almost like a failure because you have promised people from that village that I'll bring cash with me when I come back. But the thing is like, she hasn't been able to sell that. She was selling it for 2000 in the beginning, in the first day. And now she's ready to reduce the price to 1200 Which is around like $12 for one. Yeah, that. $12 for it. It will take at least like four days. And I was surprised when I break down the selling price with the number of days, they are not even like the lowest of the lowest ways. And I was like, oh, this is not going to work. I bought some of them. Then I asked her to leave those mats at one of her relatives place. And I know I'm going to contact you later. And then I, I took her number and then I started communicating. That's how it gone, you know. You end up meeting them in their village as well and getting to know Ex them. Exactly. Right? I went there twice already. We have a very good uh, relationship now. That time she was 17 or 18 years old. She could read and write and she could communicate. But the other uh, weavers, uh, whoever used to uh, weave those grass mats, they were much older and they couldn't read and write. And so it was difficult for others to come to the city and communicate with the customers. But she had just passed her high school and she was a bit more energetic. And she was the chosen one, let's say, to come to Kathmandu. It was a pretty interesting meeting with everyone. We even took a small training to that community. I stayed there for more than a week. I communicated with everybody uh, The second time I went there, I talked to Santi. She coordinates everything because she can use Facebook. She can uh, send me text messages and everything. We need someone like her from that community. I told her I'll be coming this time of the year. And uh, if anyone is interested to learn something new, please let them know. She said, okay, I'll talk to my uh, people. And then she goes, okay, people are interested, but what are we going to get? Besides learning something new, what are we going to get? Is there any incentives that we're going to get? Are we going to get money from it? Here in Nepal, because of NGOs and INGOs, what they used to do was like, um, if you be a part of a training, it's not only about the learning thing. They will give you extra money for it. The reason is they want is the number. They want to see the group of people. They want to have people that could fit in their camera lens, you know? So the more the people, what they think is that the successful is the training. It's not about what the people learn. It was more about the number of people. They are already used to this kind of uh, uh, thing. And then she was asking me if they're going to get any money out of it. And I said, no. Someone is coming all the way from Netherlands to share their skills and try to teach you something. You guys are the one who needs to pay her. And then uh, she came to me and said, yeah, if you are interested. What I felt is like she couldn't say no to me. That's how I felt. And she must have told her very closed ones to come and be a part of the training. That's how I felt. We went to the community. When we went there, so many women started joining. The room was full. It was like 25 or 26 people there. I think it was July and it's quite hot in here. We just couldn't handle it. It was warm. And especially the lady from Netherlands, she was sweating. It was quite difficult for everyone, but nobody was complaining. Everybody was like, wow. I told them what to expect from this training and what are our objectives, what are the products that we're going to come up with and what will happen after that training. They must have realized that they have made a good decision you know, coming to that training. So I wanted to pick up something that you said that was very interesting. You said when you asked her to find if anyone was interested in this training, she felt like she couldn't say no. Why did she feel that way? That's how we are you know, taught. I think it's a part of the culture. They will just stay quiet but they just can't say no. They will always agree on things that they can't do. And I always tell them, please don't do that. Do not agree in the things that you won't be able to. 
And do you face that kind of issue when you were asking them to produce things for you? Like they will say, yes, we can produce X amount of goods, but the thing that comes to your doorstep is different. But not now. This thing hasn't happened now. First, I, I always do a bit more research before I approach them. You have to listen to them. You have to be in their footsteps. And then when you approach them, then it's going to come out. Sometimes I even tell them to be in the market. You have to add some innovations to your things. If you add a bit more twist to it, people will appreciate that. People love having new things. They just wanted to see some change. That's what I tell them. We have a new design, but they haven't done it before. They have been doing the same traditional ones for many years, and they don't want it to change. And what I tell them what if there is no demand for it, but we have something new that we're coming up with, and you can do it. I, I try to convince them, and they will listen. And when the things are finished and completed, they will be surprised to themselves as well. And I even tell them the feedback of the customers. Look at these people have praised your work. They have appreciated your the weaving, and it's very strong. And and yeah, they they love it. They love to hear that, and they feel very appreciated. And one of the things I noticed when I was in Nepal that's very unique to you is that it's very very diverse. Depending where you are, you have the mountains, you have the lower lands. Could you give those who are listening who've never been to Nepal an idea of what it's like, just in Nepal and how it's spread out in the communities around the country? We have the highest mountain on Earth, Mount Everest, to the very lowlands where it's like very hot in summer. Geographical reason has their own speciality and it has its own climate. Its weather condition is very different. And the people who lives in those regions, they have to survive somehow. We are landlocked. We don't have very easy transportations. Most of the things has to come through land from India, and uh, if something happened, we have to suffer. And so it's a bit difficult. The people in Nepal. Somehow managed to survive even in mountains. The people are more into using woolen items, and the hat, the jacket, the blankets, and those all are made from yak wool, sheep, or mountain goat. They have somehow managed to make something they could fight in those rough conditions. And when you come to the mid hills between a mountain and Tara, is very warm and plain area. And in between mountains, and we have a hills, and it's mostly covered by forest. People living in that region use forest products. They have learned to make fiber out of uh, like stinging nettle, like hemp, or tree bark of a trees, and those kind of things. And so they have made a cloth out of it. They have made shoes out of it, and and they have made a, a household goods out of it. On the southern part of Nepal, that's the plain. Most of the food. Grows like especially the rice and 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 corn and and wheat grows because、uh, there's an abundance of water there. The river flows from the high hills to the plain, and there's a lot of irrigation and all these things. And the, so that's where the Tharu community lives. And because of the river, there are wetland grasses that grows in that part. People know how to use those and come up with very nice baskets or maybe floor mats or to cover their houses using those roofs, those kind of things. So we are very fortunate, and we have identified the strength. So we're trying to use those traditional skills, local materials, and come up with something that satisfies the needs of the global people. And I saw some of the things that you mentioned, like the corn husk, the stinging nettle bags that you've been making. I saw all those different things. It would be fair to say that the lives they're leading now is similar to what their ancestors were living like hundreds of years ago. I'll give an example of a stinging nettle. It grows in the forest here in Nepal. It's almost like two to three meters tall. 
just like hemp, it grows in the forest. Like every part of that nettle plant has been used. And many people have realized that even the leaf of the nettle, now you can find it in the market as a like a nettle tea, or you can use that as a soup. And uh, the bark of it, you can use this to make and make it a yarn and weave everything out of it. And uh, the root of the nettle plant, people with diabetic use it. Those people who are living, especially in the remote region, they could find tons of uh, nettle. It's very hard for them to come to the market, but also they don't have uh, money to buy it. They don't depend on anyone. They are self-reliant people. They have their own field. They go to the forest and collect timbers and they go to the forest and harvest the nettle and make their own fabric, wear them. And they have their field. They have their cows and goats and everything that give them milk and that give them manure. They have been doing this for years and years. They don't have to wait for someone to come and give them money. Everything is within their reason, that tradition. So we're trying to keep that tradition still alive. And one thing you mentioned just now was the accessibility of getting things from one place to the other. Could you explain that for you? Because I imagine it must be quite hard to bring those things down from the communities to the city itself just to sell it. Exactly, exactly. You know, first thing is identifying the product that people make is the one part. And maybe just the one person from that community knows how to weave that. When you identify that product is coming from that community, maybe we can transfer the skills from one person to another and market that product, bring it here. Bringing is the difficult part, as you said, because the thing is it takes seven to eight hours of uh, trek from the nearest highway bus stations to get to that place. When you start walking at seven in the morning, then you reach there by five in the evening. That's how far it is. But the people over there make some very nice drugs. Even after they make those things, it's very difficult for them to carry it and bring it to the nearest bus stations. People from that region don't know much about how logistics works. Some of the people haven't even gone to the city. They haven't even seen the city. Some of them didn't even have a ride of bus. It's very difficult. And also, the season will make a big difference. Like During monsoon time, there's always a landslide happening. And uh, the things that are already made, we can't get them because the roads is a flood and happening there and everything will be stopped. In winter season, we're working with a community from Dolpa, a region behind Himalayas. So you have to go through a very difficult mountain pass to get to that place. And during winter time, we can't get anything from Dolpa. We have to wait for another six to eight months. So when you say going through the mountain, you mean that the humans are actually carrying all this from the village all the way down? Exactly. Human or they use a mule or a horse or a yak. So those are the only transportations to bring those things. We don't have the other way of bringing those things. Even those things are made, we can't guarantee that we'll be able to receive that because it takes a few days to, to get to the nearest bus stations and you don't know what will happen in between. So how do you do your business then? How do you arrange with, say, a customer who wants 10 of these balls, but you don't know if the balls will even make it down? I think our customers know who we are and how we work. I always tell them how difficult it is to receive things. And I I always tell them, we can't commit to your order. But we always work hard to, to bring them here, but we can't guarantee them. Sometimes they would send me a balls if somebody orders a 10 ball, they would send me 20 balls, let's say. But when I receive them, those balls might not be in the same conditions as they were made. They might come cracked. They might got broken because they have to go through a very rough time. People carry them, putting on the bus, and some people just don't care because it's all in a rice sack, tightly done. They don't pay much attention. 
they will just take that as an object that they need to take it to Kathmandu. So they don't care about how fragile it is. It may get broken. They don't care about it. So we have those things on our hand. We can't commit to our customers. But we tell them that, though. They cooperate and they understand our uh, difficulties. And uh, I think that's what the Kolpa is all about. Right? When you see these bowls and they are cracked, what do you do? Do you just throw them away? No, no, I haven't. I will never throw these things away. They are very precious. It's not only about the broken balls. I, I always see something, some meaningful in it. Those balls are made by people who are in a very difficult conditions and they must have made this in a very difficult situations. It's not easy. It's not like they have a very nice house. They are not made in a well-made room or something. It has something that has some story in it. Sometimes I stitch them together. Sometimes I glue them together. I will somehow make some use of it and try to sell them. Sometimes the broken balls uh, will also be a piece of art as well. So how do you even begin to learn how to put these different objects together? Reusing things, recycling materials. And uh, those are the, the words that I always follow. I, I do a lot of research from around the world and Japanese technique. It has been a very inspiration to me. I've seen a lot of Japanese art. They don't throw things that are broken. They somehow come up with some ideas and put them together. Those are the things that I do. What I also learn is when I go to a remote part of Nepal, uh, to a new place, I see them using the same thing for years and years. I see them stitching them together. I see them like fixing somehow. And I was like, wow, just because it's broken, it doesn't mean that it has to be thrown away. And so I learn from them as well because, you know, living in the remote part, they don't have money or maybe they don't get the same thing that Maybe the person who makes it already passed away, or, or maybe that product will have some connection to it. They don't want to throw away. So what they do is they try to reuse it and make it functional. That's how I learn. I ask them, how do they do it? And, and who made it? And what did you do when it's destroyed or damaged? I see the way they work and try to learn from them as well. And I was wondering, apart from meeting with someone like you who would sell them in the city or elsewhere... Does the community manage to supplement their income with any other source? The people also have their own field. This is not their full-time job. Some of them have a buffalo to sell milk, and some of them have a rice field. During harvesting time, they go out in the field, and we don't pressure anyone. We always tell them, after doing all your household stuff, don't stay idle. Make good use of it so that you can keep your skills running, and also you will have something for yourself and your family. You can have some emergency fund on a side whenever you need it. So that's what I tell them. I mean, we understand now the communities that you're working with, the challenges that you face working with them. I was wondering for you yourself and Copa, what was it like when you first started? Did you already have a store somewhere? How did you start going out? Actually, I started from my basement. I didn't have a store. There was my computer and me. And I used to bring fabric and I cut it by myself. I designed everything in there. And then I take it to my uh, partners from Kirtipur. I, I used to take it to him and he used to stitch and, and give it to me. I didn't have any stores. The first time we went uh, to public was on a February uh, 14th of uh, 2015. We developed a website and there was a bit more buzz going around the city. Somebody approached us. That was a Nepal Young Entrepreneurs Forum. They offered us to showcase our products in that um, February 14th fair. It was more of a made in Nepal fair. We agreed. And that was the first time that we went on public. And when everybody started asking us where our store is and where do we sell them, I don't know what to say then because I didn't have any store. Or I haven't given it to any other store as well to sell my product. So everything was done online. Everything was in my apartment. 
And after that, I realized, okay, I think I, sh- I should have some store where people could come and buy things and at least come and see it in person. Maybe after a few months, we started our first store in Lajim Park in Kathmandu. And what other products were you selling at the time? I had only 10 different bags. The store looks kind of empty. It was quite difficult for me. <clears throat> and then I started keeping things. I, I started working Nepali lokta paper. And then there was the grass straw mats. And there were some woolen items as well. And it wasn't my design. I just wanted to fill the space so that when people come to the store, if they are not interested in bags, they might find some other stuff they couldn't take. What was the reception like? Were the products flying off the shelves? Not really, actually. To to be honest with you, first few years was very tough for me. And uh, actually, I had to even pay my rent from my own pocket. It wasn't self-sustaining. Maybe it's because of the location as well, because we were on the first floor. That time, that area was under construction. The roads were dusty and they were widening the streets. There was always constructions happening. The first few years was a bit tough, yeah. So how do you manage in terms of finances? Because you still need to feed yourself while pursuing this. Yes, that's where my other half comes in. We are living a very simple life. Only thing we want is a good sleep. That's what we all want. We want our kids to have a good education. That's our main goal. The rest is where we can survive. During those hard days, my wife was supporting my family as well. From the earning that she made, my parents helped me a little. First few years was more of a learning. Those difficult days are now my strength. COVID and whatever, I don't see it that tough. I, everybody thinks it's a tough time, but I think I've gone through that already. Did you ever feel during those periods that maybe you wanted to give up and not pursue this line, just get like a job that would pay? Yeah, actually, when you have a lot of expenses, then your earnings. And then when you look back and sometimes I, I regret coming to Nepal, that period, if I was a business graduate, maybe I could have some ideas. Maybe I could go and look for investors or or trying to write a project, the business plan and look for a business loan and those kind of things. But I wasn't good at anything. I was just doing something that is coming out of my heart. I wasn't thinking of going bigger. And only goal that time was how to survive. I used to tell my wife, I think we made a bad decision coming to Nepal. I think we should go back to US. But she said, no, I mean, come on, whatever you're doing is doing something good. Maybe not today, maybe after a few weeks or maybe a month or so. She used to chorus me to look to the brighter side. Even those difficult times, I have seen so many people coming to our store and sharing me kind and good words. People used to appreciate the thing that we make. And, and those few words were holding me tight. But yeah, sometimes it used to come to me, like, uh, why did I step into the business? Maybe I should have just go and do some nine to five job. I think it happens to everyone once in a while, especially when you were doing something new, something different. And I'm wondering what point did all the fortunes turn and you feel that, okay, you can make it? You know what? Yeah. Even in those difficult times, I have a few customers. They are very elite people. They have a very high social status. And some people were from abroad as well. And when they come to me and when they see me, when they see our products, they used to take everything from us. There was a time my store has gone almost empty, just like one customer steps in. When she was there, she took almost everything. And then I was like, what am I going to sell afterwards? What I felt is like, there is something in this. The thing I'm doing, must have something. Otherwise, why would she come and and take everything what I have? 
there was another time like someone from Korea came in and uh, at that time I was just starting making backpacks, making nettle and handmade leather. And then uh, that I just started making samples, actually. I just made like one or two. I didn't have money to make 10 backpacks. So I used to only make two or three pieces. If I sell those, then I'm just going to go and make another one. The guy came in and he was asking even for the samples. Like, look here, I'm going to take this to South Korea and I'm going to sell this. And he took almost everything. He was an, a social media influencer, actually. And he see the market set. So those few peoples, because of them, I felt like there must be something in it. I should keep going. At what point did you feel that you were out of the difficult patch? Yeah, like when I started, we moved from Lazimpat to Jamsikhel, the, the place where yeah we are right now. And used to be holiday fairs every Saturday in different parts in Kathmandu. I used to take part in almost every market fair then because I just need our words to be out there. I would just want people to see like we exist. People started telling us how good our product, oh, I'm sending this to someone who is looking for this kind of thing for so many years, those kind of things. And and when we started getting a very good response, especially in the fair market, then we realized, okay, we have gone through the, those difficult times. And and when we moved back to here, in, when we came to some scale, it's not like walking and running. We actually started jumping. That was 2017. And since 2017, how has it been so far? So far, it's such a blessing, we feel. We are getting a lot of inquiry from around the world. People who are environmentally aware, who wants to buy things from a business like us, impacting, giving some positive change to the society. And those are the people we are, we are getting more inquiry from. It's not only about the Nepal, it's also from around the globe. That Kolpa is getting a buzz. And how do people tend to find out about Kolpa? I think mostly from the websites and also from social media. And also from word of mouth, the people who buy things from here, they go back home and maybe the Kolpa products might be a conversation starter. And that's how people find from websites and also from social media. Do you have a particular community that has especially touched you? Yes, actually, Rauti community, the one who made the wooden balls, the last nomads of Nepal. And they're hunter-gatherers. They don't have a home. They move from place to place. Only skills they have is making wooden balls and wooden chests. They have been doing this for hundreds of years. There are only 145 to 150 of them left. And the only thing they could survive is by making these balls and trading them, grains and the clothings and stuff like this. They don't ask for anything beyond the food. They don't have high hopes. They don't have ambitions. What I felt is if we don't encourage them to keep doing what they're doing, those crafts will be lost and even the whole community will be extinct. And I'm wondering, you mentioned about these people who are very dependent on the climate. So how has COVID-19 impacted the community and Kopa itself? Before COVID-19, Visit Nepal 2020 was about to run, right? I stocked a lot of items because we know that many people would come and visit us. Before COVID-19, we had a lot of things from Taru community, from Rauti community, even from the inmates Things are coming back to normal now. Whatever we have stocked in those days, pre-COVID-19, we're selling them out quite fast, which is good for us. But to the community who we are working with, they're having a hard time sending those goods to us because the transportation is not allowed to run from one district to another. So whatever happens, happens only within certain part of, of that district, not from the other regions of Nepal. So we still have the furnitures made by the prisoners from Dai Lake, from Karnali region, we haven't been able to receive that. But they have made that like three months ago. 
Same with the Tharu community. During lockdown, they have nothing to do, so, so they just stay home that we have ordered. And the same with the stools. It's still sitting there and they haven't been able to uh, send us here. I'm kind of worried about the production of the product. But if they need money, we have been sending them. Because I know those three months have been very difficult. So, and uh, without any uh, question or anything, even I asked them if they are doing okay with the amount they have, are they having difficulties supporting their family? If you are, just let me know. And I even supported them without any clause or anything, without any conditions, because I know them. We are partners. So, difficult times, we have to help each other out. That's what we think. But the thing is, people from other parts of the world, when they visit us, they wanted to take a piece of Nepal. And now, because of COVID 19, the tourism business has completely gone down. The flow has been less, but we are kind of like thinking of going online though. Let's see how it goes. Things are kind of slow, but I still don't have a complaint about it because many businesses are having a much more tougher time than us. So thinking about them, we're okay. We're okay. But hopefully, even in the coming days, we'll have the same thing. But let's hope for the better times. So at this point in time, what do you think is the future for COPA? Extending the market of Kolpa is one thing. And another is we have to work on a business model here within Nepal. We wanted to have a network of our partners from different regions of Nepal into one so that they can share the skills and information among one another. That is one of our goals. And to make the production process more efficient, bring those products to the global audience. That is another part. We are hoping to collaborate with some other store from outside Nepal. Because this product has a demand everywhere. These are purely natural, organic, it's handmade and doesn't harm the earth and environment. And it's made very social and, and we are being very responsible in making. It has a whole lot of um, story behind it. And uh, the people, whoever buys our product will always feel good about it. It's not only about that they spend money on a certain product. And then uh, we're trying to go for an online store here in Nepal as well. It's not only for outside, even within Nepal, because Nepal has been importing a lot of uh, goods from other countries. And uh, we have to make aware the people here in Nepal to use something that is produced and made here. When people buy something, what happens with that money? Like, How do you portion what goes to community? To the people who makes it, like almost 50% of our money, money goes to the community. Let's say to the Rauti people, when they make things, they will send it here through one organization. And that organization will put the price of the product. We pay the amount that they have asked for. And that organization will buy things for them. So that's the case. And we do a bit more finishing to the product and put a price on it. After selling their products, we put aside certain amount of money so that whenever they have difficulties, when they have to move from one place to another, and also during winter time, they will have a difficulty, especially having warm clothes. So during those times, after selling their product, we will give back to their community as well. And the same with the Taru community. There's a scheme. If a certain weaver weaves, let's say, a 200 square feet of floor mats, besides getting her the money for her, woven mat. We ask them the need in their household, like, okay, what do you need? Something that could make their life easy. Since we're working with the community, sometimes they need a rice cooker, a solar light, a transistor or a fan. Maybe they might need a heater. So we ask them what their need is. And then we give them. When other person sees them receiving those, just weaving the floor mats, that encourages other people. Maybe I should be a bit more serious as well. So 
That's what we do as well. So more than 50% sometimes goes back to the community. For those who are looking to be a social entrepreneur themselves, do you have any big piece of advice for them? Never put your interest first. Always put your feet on their shoes and then do the backwards calculations in such a way that both person will have a mutual benefits so that both partners will grow together. That's what I would tell to everyone. There's a business, but do a business in such a way so that whoever you are working with will grow the same ratio or in the same way that you are growing. Thank you so much, Ravi, for your time. I normally end with three quick questions, which is, do you feel that you have found your why? I'm not sure about this because I don't know why I did it, but there's still a long way to go. I would say that I haven't found why on it. Even though there are five or six communities that I'm working with, that's not enough for me. What I'm doing is just the gut feeling that I have, the feeling to serve people. That's the only thing I'm doing right now. But I still have a long way to go to find that. And what kind of legacy would you like to leave behind? I wanted to leave a space where no one can fill up. What are the most important qualities of someone who wants to do what you're doing? Patience, politeness, and thinking beyond self. And if anyone wants to connect with you, know what Kopa is up to, what's the best way for them to reach out? We have a Facebook page and Instagram about where they could even email me through my website. They can contact me through WhatsApp as well. So I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can reach out to you. Is there anything else that you feel we haven't covered that people should know? When you wanted to do something good for the society or when you wanted to start a social business is should always have a patience because especially when you're working with community you have to be who they are it's more about building relationship and gaining trust and once you have that the product will automatically be created it's not a big deal it's not about the product it's more about the relationship that's what i would tell everyone amazing rabbi thank you so much for your time thank you ling thank you and that was the end of episode nine the show notes can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash nine, including the transcript and links to everything we just talked about. And don't forget to head over to Apple Podcasts to leave your thoughts or to Instagram under the handle sothisismywhy because I'll be posting mini videos of Ravi explaining the various products he has in Copa, including the foldable treasure chests and bowls made by the nomadic Rote tribe. And stay tuned for episode 10, which drops next Sunday, because we will be meeting a Canadian artist whose mom is from Kuching, my hometown. Yay! And deep dive into his incredible journey from being an engineer to having his heart broken by a girl, buying his first rubbish $100 Walmart camera that began a trajectory that has seen him create some of the most breathtaking photos, creating a passionate fan base and generating over 100 million organic views to date. We will be talking about the how-tos of creating viral content, his thought processes behind the extraordinary projects he's undertaken, as well as the question of impact. What is impact? How is he creating impact and meaning? Here's a small hint. It all began with storm chasing. All that and more in episode 10. So stay tuned and see you next Sunday.